here with you you guys today. Um, I'm going to be here this week. Next Sunday, I'll be here the following Sunday. Brother Eric's going to be preaching for us. He's going to do the Wednesday nights for us as well while we are in Africa. Be in prayer for that. Um, We do have a busy schedule Um, when we land. We're going to land on Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday, we have an orientation. We'll be gone Thursday and Friday. It'll be all day teaching. Uh, Let's see, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we have an all-day conference. Sunday, we'll be preaching different churches across the area. Monday, we have uh, dedications to do with some buildings. Um, Wednesday, we're teaching all day. Thursday, we're teaching, or yeah, no, yeah, Tuesday, teaching all day. Wednesday, teaching all day. Thursday, do a safari. Friday, get back on the plane and fly home. So it's going to be non-stop. So uh, do keep us in prayer if you would. I sure would appreciate it. So we're going to jump into our message. I'm going to do a little bit of review today just to kind of, I know it's unusual, but I just thought I'd throw a review in this morning. Um, but this is our study called A Life Live for God. This is our, as I said, 99th message in the book of Joshua. We have entered into Joshua 15, which is exciting. Um, but if you read Joshua 15, you may not think it's too exciting to preach through, but we will see what we can do today. Um, lastly, we finished Joshua chapter 14. And what we did in Joshua 14, that message was called Facing Giants at Any Age. And the ongoing mission of the Israelites to attain or possess their promised land, we took note of a man named Caleb. Caleb is this faithful man of God who has uh, literally is described as a man who uh, was wholly, uh, wholly followed the Lord. But we took note of the faithfulness of Caleb. And in doing so, we noticed there were several things about him that we talked about last week. First of all, we noticed that he was, uh, he recognized that every day was a gift from God. He recognized, secondly, that the spiritual strength did not, did not diminish with age. He was 85 years old when this message is being, when he's uh, doing what he's doing. Real strength was derived from God. And the last thing was that God rewards faithfulness. And there's these four concepts, and we hear these, and we go, okay, what's really good about Joshua or about, about Caleb is the fact that he was a man who was fully committed to God, and he was able to experience God's blessings in amazing ways. But in looking at the way his all-in attitude, the way that he saw life, he really gave us a great example of how it is we should live as our Christians, as Christian lives, um, how we should be dedicated in regards to our faithfulness. How do we live our faith? And those four things are really important to understand, that every day is a gift from God. That listen, that listen, that that our that our strength doesn't diminish with age. There's opportunities with age as God works in our lives. We have experiences that we can share with others. Remember, God never wastes pain. You go back in your life and you find situations and circumstances where maybe you suffered, and you know what? If you'll take give it enough time, eventually God's going to show you how to use that to help somebody else, which is pretty cool. And then we noticed also the fact that dependence upon God's strength and not on our own strength. It's a very important thing for us to always keep in mind. It's not about us. It's not about what we can accomplish. It's what God can accomplish through us. And then the last thing was holding on to all of those things, recognizing the fact that, listen, man, God rewards faithfulness. He wants us to simply fulfill what it is he's asked of us. And it's actually going to tie into what we're going to talk about today. But the one thing that's cool about it and the reason why we can count on God and the reason why we list him as faithful is he is the only one that is truly 100% faithful. He can be counted on. He always keeps his word. But let's imagine if you and I could wholly commit ourselves to the Lord if we were truly faithful to Him in all aspects of our life. Can you imagine how that would impact your walk? Can you imagine how it would impact your relationship with God? You'd be in constant fellowship with God. Can you imagine how it would affect the relationships in your life, your impact on your community? It would be a game changer to say the least. But the more clearly our lives reflect the image of Christ, what happens is the influence or the power that the flesh has upon us gets weaker 
and weaker, right? Galatians 5.16, we talk about this on a regular basis, right? It says, you know, it says, this I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So listen, if you'll sell yourself out to this, to walking in the spirit, that aspect of the flesh, the battle that you're dealing with, it's not going to be that big of a deal. For you see, God's rewards, the ones that he gives us that are really worth receiving, very rarely are they physical rewards. Very rarely are things that are tangible that we can hold on to. Much more, they're spiritual. There's a peace, right, that God talks about. See, this is the one that the world is always sought, right? If you ask people, if you had one wish for the world, what would it be? World peace. I want world peace. Everybody wants world peace, right? So that's what everybody burns for, but guess what? The one that the world can never get. It's never going to experience peace. And they don't even understand what real peace is. See, they just think it's an absence of conflict. But the peace that God talks about is very, very different. It is peace with our Creator, which is incredible. And what's so cool is as Christians, instead of us having to work for it, instead of us having to be this perfect, perfect, uh, perfect image or example or, or, or be a dedicated religious individual, it's not about us, right? It actually comes down to this. It's about surrender to God. See, we talked about last week God wanting to use a vessel, right? A vessel is nothing more than something that holds something. And God wants us to be a vessel that he can work through. He wants us to be filled with his spirit. And so we, in John 14, verses 27, it says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Do you notice that Jesus says, give. My peace I give unto you. He's giving it to us, man. He's listening. He's going like, it's free. You know what it is? It's a reward for faithfulness. He says, hey, if you'll give your heart to me, guess what? I'm all about it. Our relationship is going to be rich and beautiful and pure and amazing. It is a result of faithfulness. And so here you and I, we have the opportunity to actually attain our spiritual promised land. Remember, the Bible is filled with Old Testament pictures, examples to show us what it is we should be shooting for. Again, we talked about, I mentioned this yesterday in the funeral. You know, God teaches through, through pictures. He teaches through examples. The two most important words in Bible study is the word as and the word like. If you learn to watch for those two words, God will give you an example and he'll say, it is, I want you to love as Christ loved the church. As is setting it up going, I'm getting ready to tell you what you need to know. Like is saying it's going to be like this, like the church. So these examples, God does this. So he works through these examples for us. And what we find is for you and I, we're, we're shooting for our promised land. What's our promised land? It's not heaven. It's a place of peace with God. It's a place of, of walking with God and fellowship with him. It's something that we're supposed to be able to attain when we're on earth. He just told us that he would give it to us. A peace that actually the Bible says passeth understanding. No one on the earth can understand it except for believers. And so it comes by way of humble surrender to the Lord. And again, we are to be that vessel that God wants to use, one that's set aside for the master's use. God wants to draw us close to him and then turn around and use our life as a ministering tool to those around us. Recognize it's not just about salvation. It's not just about receiving Christ. It's not just about being a believer. It's about God using your life from that day forward to make a difference in someone else's life. You know why we're here today? Because someone was faithful to share the gospel. Because someone lived a testimony that spoke to our hearts. And guess what? That's why we have a testimony. That's why we're on the earth today. But as we transition out of Caleb's story, we transition out of what we learned there, what we're going to do is we're going to transition over to Judah. Okay, This is the tribe of Judah. And what we're going to look at is their inheritance today. Now, if you've read ahead, which maybe some of you have, and you got to chapter 15, and you started reading all of the locations 
that are listed in chapter 15, you're like, well, okay, okay, this is going to be rich. Uh, <laughs> just looks like a whole bunch of places. You're like, okay, what are we going to do with this? Well, can imagine how I feel. I'm like, okay, God, what are we going to, okay, here we go. But um, what we're going to talk about today is the tribe of Judah and what they're going to receive from God. And the message title today is called Blessings Have Boundaries. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into it. Thank you, Lord, for today, for the gift of this time that we get to spend together around your word. And Lord, you know, I have, uh, I have searched, and I have read, and I have studied, and I have made notes, and uh, Lord, I have uh, assembled what I believe is exactly what you want us to hear today. And uh, Lord, I do pray that you'd help me to get out of the way. This is not about what I have to share, but Lord, what it is you need to share with us. And Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear. Lord, even in reviewing this message this morning, Lord, you have ministered to my heart through it. So Lord, I just pray. Uh, God, that you please remove the human element, and would you use this word uh, to speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to throw the map up on the screen. You also have a copy, because of my amazing wife, on your paperwork. Your very first, this should be, we've got to mark this down. It's the very first map we've ever gotten in our notes, which is very exciting. <laughs> you guys want to frame that and put it on the wall? It's obviously show. I was like, wow, that's awesome. But, okay, so we're going to see this on your map. You're going to see Judah is this area here, okay? And what I'm going to do is, as I'm reading this, you're going to basically, we're going to, re- we're going to read the borders of what limits this property, okay? Verse 15, or chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. This then was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah by their families, even to the border of Edom, the wilderness of Zin, southward was the uttermost part of the south coast. So Zin is what's below them. Their south border was from the shore of the Salt Sea, okay? You see the Salt Sea on the right, from the bay that looketh southward, and it went out to the south side to Mal. Akrabim and passed along to Zin and ascended up on the south side unto Kadesh Barnea and passed along to Hezron and went up to Edar and fetched a compass to Karka. From thence it passed towards Asmon and went out of the river of Egypt and out of, and goings out of the coast that were at the sea. This would this shall be your south coast. So you see that matches up to the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea. That's the south border. Okay, fifth or number five, the east border. The east border was the Salt Sea. You'll see that on the right. Even unto the end of Jordan, so all the way up the Jordan River. And their border in the north quarter was from the Bay of the Sea in the uttermost part of Jordan. And the border went up to Beth Hogla and passed along by the border of, of Beth Arabah. And the border went up to the stone of Bahan, the son of Reuben. So you're going to see it goes just above the, uh, the Salt Sea. That's the upper corner. Then we start working our way across from north or from, from left to right or from right to left in regards to the northern border. And the border went up toward Debir from the valley of Achor and the so northward. Looking forward, Gilgal, that is before the going to Adam, Adamum, uh, which is on the south side of the river. And the border passed toward the waters of En Shemesh and the goings out thereof were in, of Enrogel. And the border went up by the valley of the son of Hinnom under the south side of the Jebusite. The same as Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in that upper right-hand corner. And the border went up to the top of the mountain that lies before the valley of Hinnom westward, which is at the end of the valley of the giants northward. This is going to be a very, very specific border. This is what's dividing what are the other, the other, um, the other tribes from them. And the border was drawn from the top of the mount, fountain of the Nephtah and went out of the cities uh, of Mount Ephron. And the border was drawn to, to Bala, which is kirjath Jerem, and the border compassed from Bala westward unto Mount Seir, and passed along unto the side of Mount Jerem, which is Chesalon on the north side, and went down to Beth Shemesh, and passed on to Timnah. And the border went out unto the side of Ekron northward, and the border was, was drawn to Shikron, and passed along Mount Bala, and went out unto Jabneel, and the goings out of the border were at the south, were at the sea. So that's the northern border all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, or they call the, salt sea, or they call the, um, the Great Sea. And then verse 12 says, And the west border 
was to the great sea and the, and the coast thereof. This is the coast of the children of Judah, round about according to their families. Okay, so we read that and they go, man, that is just loaded with stuff, isn't it? All kinds of stuff. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at this tribe of Judah, right? This is what they've inherited. We see on our map that it is by far the largest allotment of land when you look down at your map. It literally is almost equivalent to all the other seven and a half tribes combined. Now, I say seven and a half tribes. There are, at this point in time in, this, in the Canaan, there are nine and a half tribes. But there is that eighth tribe, which is the tribe of Simeon. And what we know about Simeon, and Simeon was, was, um, was, was corrected by his father for his violence. So what we find with Simeon is Simeon actually does not get his own land. He's actually just allowed to live inside of Judah's land. If you look on your map, you'll see it sort of says Simeon sort of in that bottom end. Verse jo- Joshua chapter 19, verse 1 says, tells us about this. It says, And the second lot came forth to Simeon, even for the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families, and their inheritance was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. They were given land that they could live on, but it was Judah's. So what made Judah so special? Why were they so much larger than the others? Now, we know from our study in Joshua 14, we we went through and we actually studied there were some components that would define what their properties would be. We saw, first of all, that they had a lot, okay? Now, in receiving their lot, this was where God was delineating where they were going to be located. But then we also saw that it was also going to be based upon their population. The larger they were, the larger the land mass or the land that they would receive. And what we find out about Judah as we study them, we go back into the book of Exodus and we see an actual um, census was taken. And this is two years after the Exodus. This gives us an idea of kind of what their numbers were. When they did a census, they numbered men over the age of 20. These would be warriors, men that could fight in battle. And they are numbered out to be 74,600 men. Numbers chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Of the children of Judah, by their generations, after their families, by the house of their fathers, according to the number of the names, from 20 years old and upward, all that were able to go forth to war, those that were numbered of them, even of the tribe of Judah, were threescore and 14,600. 174,600 men. So they had a very, very large population. So we see that perhaps that has a lot to do with the size discrepancy. But when you go and you study the others, what you'll say is some of them actually had up to 60,000 people. So there are others that are pretty good size. So the, the, the difference in the size doesn't seem to quite, be, to quite be fair. So there might be some other reasonings behind why Judah needs to be as large as it is. And so in order to answer that question, what we'll do is we'll kind of, kind of look at Judah himself. As we went back and we looked at Reuben, we looked at these different individuals, we're going to look at, at Judah's history, kind of going back to where he comes from. Now, Judah was the fourth-born son. Sorry. Fourth-born son. That's like a Shrek, right? Number three, my lord, three. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the point is this. Um, Judah was, a, was, was that born son. Now, what happened with Judah? Judah had some, had some issues just like his brothers outside of Joseph. Joseph, remember, is a perfect picture of, of Christ. There's no examples of him in regard to failures of character. But what we found with Judah is Judah does have some issues just like his brothers did. But even though in spite of this issues of his heart, what we find is that Jacob actually blesses him tremendously when he's on his deathbed. And he picks Jude out specifically. It's in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12. Genesis 49, verse 8. It says this, Judah, thou art he whom thine brethren shall praise. 
Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Now, history will prove this out, that they are going to be a fierce nation. But recognize the fact that King David is of the tribe of Judah. King David, right? Now, he will reign over all of Israel. And out of the line of David will come the Messiah, who is the king of Israel kings, right? Now let's look at verse number nine. It says, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter. Notice the scepter. This is a picture of royalty and leading by a kingship. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. When we go to the chapter Revelations and we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what it says about him? It says that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let's look at that in Revelations 5.5. And it says, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. You see that Judah is spelled differently there. That just simply is the Greek rendering of the same name. So Judah has a very important role in humanity's Story, an incredibly important role. Verse 11 and 12 says, Binding his foal under the vine and his ass colt under the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Remember, wine is a representation of blood. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. God is going to ultimately judge the earth and unify the planet based upon the tribe of Judah. This is the root or the base of where it will come from. And so as we look into Judah's story a little bit more, we start to understand a little bit about who he is. What we find is there's a lot of turmoil in his life. There's issues with his kids. There's issues with his own struggles with personal, intimate sin that he has in his life. So what we find is Judah's a flawed individual. Does that make anybody else feel better about themselves? Isn't it nice to know that there's other flawed people? Just look around. There's plenty of us, right? So what's, what's great about this and what's encouraging about this is the Bible does not give us whitewashed representations of humanity. We don't get uh, a, a symbolized or a, or a perfected person. We get people that had flesh just like you and I. People that struggled with battling their anger, their temptations, their lusts. People that were just like us who lived real lives and who sometimes made the wrong choice. And we go, Wow. Well, that's kind of encouraging because, you know what, sometimes I don't always make the right choice. Sometimes I'm an idiot. Sometimes I do the wrong thing. Sometimes I have the wrong attitude. How encouraging it is that I can see people that God still used who were broken people just like I am. Hey, how praise God that he's willing to show us the imperfections. It's so the thing that's amazing is it's much easier to find people with lots of imperfections in the Bible than to find people that don't. There are very few perfect pictures of Christ. Most of them are a train wreck like you and I, which is awesome. So, encouraging encouraging. And so as an introduction into them, what it's going to do now is allow us to sort of look at how the Lord is going to use these verses for us today. Okay? He's describing borders of the, of the tribe of Judah. And what I, what I think this is what God wants us to see today. Okay? As I said, this is a difficult one to go to and to search. Go, God, what is it we're supposed to see? What are we supposed to get? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at two simple things today, two principles that I think are direly important for our Christian lives. First of all, God wants to teach us that, number one, that if we will live within his boundaries, that we will thrive. And then secondly, outside of his boundaries, we will face destruction. Okay? Within his boundaries, we will thrive. Outside of his boundaries, 
we will face destruction. Now, for the tribe of Judah, God had given them a limited space or a parameters that they were to be within. God had established this for them. We saw on our map where it was located, that delineating factor. But what's interesting is David, we know, is going to become the king of Israel. This is something that God selected him to be specifically. Saul was king. Saul was selected by the people. And God said, you know what? If you want a king, fine. I'll let you have a king. But he was not the anointed, the, the one that was selected by God. That is David. 1 Samuel 16, verse 10 says this. Again, Jesse, we're going, to go, we're going to go to verse 13. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen thee. Samuel is the prophet. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, Well, there remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy, and withal of a a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went up to, went to Ramah. Now what we first, verse 14, which I didn't include, but what that tells us is whenever David receives the Spirit of God, you know what God does? He takes the anointing off of Saul and he puts it on to David. Now, what's interesting about this is there are people that will say we all that in the Old Testament, people had the indwelling Holy Spirit. Biblically, that's not true. Notice it says that the the Spirit came upon David. It doesn't say that it came inside of David. The indwelling Holy Spirit, a dwelling is where where God lives. At this point in time in the Old Testament, guess what? The tabernacle still exists. The temple still exists. God's established place where he dwells is there. In the New Testament, whenever that, no need for that temple anymore, guess what? We became the place of that indwelling Holy Spirit. That's just a side note. But again, we see that Spirit coming in and leaving people. This is not the way it functions in the New Testament. But now we go back to David. David would become the king of Israel. Now, obviously, God knew this. God knew this was going to take place. He knew that they would be a unified body. They would be the nation of Israel. So why is it so important to tell us about these borders? Why is it so important for us to understand that they have their own specific land? What we see in Joshua is the fact that very specifically these boundaries are there, but there's, and, and, and so we question ourselves and we go, why? Why do they need to have this important point? Well, keep in mind, again, that the Old Testament is a picture book. Okay? So when we're looking at these stories, we need to figure out how is this relating to the bigger picture. God's always teaching on multiple levels. He's teaching on a historical level so we can look at it and go, okay, this is historically what took place. But he's also teaching on a spiritual level. He's teaching on a doctrinal level. He's teaching us on a devotional level. So we have these physical examples of delineation. Um, and why is God making it a big deal? Because, listen, David is going to be king over all of Israel, but he still has borders and boundaries that he is not to step over, okay? And this is key. As long as David will stay within the boundaries that God establishes, guess what? He will thrive. He will absolutely thrive. That's our first point. And so we look at this and we go, okay, keep in mind that when David was anointed, but he was not king, that's going to take 17 years from the time he gets anointed until the time he's actually going to become king. But during that time, David's already thriving, He's already thriving. He's already doing great things. And so what's going to happen is as he is doing this, as he's living um, uh, this, this humble life, he's living this submissive life, 
the jealousy of Saul is going to grow because of David being blessed and because David's thriving, because he's walking with God and he's staying within the parameters God's established for him. Saul is sliding down a dark, dark hole and David is thriving and growing. And so what happens, if we look in 1 Samuel 18, verses 7 through 9, this is where the tides turn for David and Saul. It says, and the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands. Like, woo! And Saul's just soaking it up. He's like, yeah, slayed my thousands. And then they go, and David is 10,000. And he's like, whoa, whoa, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. What'd they just say? 10,000 for David? And Saul was very wroth and saying, displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David 10,000. And to me, they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more than the kingdom? Well, he's already gotten the reputation. Now he's going to take the kingdom from me. And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. And so during this time that David literally is going to be hunted by Saul, Saul's trying to kill him. He tries to throw a javelin through him several different times. He hunts him down to murder him. And while this is going on, David makes statements like this, 1 Samuel 24, 6. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. This is where, listen, Saul's hunting him just completely wrong. Doing, I mean, David's done nothing wrong, and Saul's hunting, hunting, hunting. And what happens in this instance is he's in a cave. Saul's sitting there asleep. David walks right up and cuts off a part of his robe, and he's like, Dude, I could slit this guy's throat right now. And his men are like, Yeah, dude, do it, man. Take it, man. You got it, brother. Rock it. This is it, Dave. And he's like, No. Hey, you know what? I'm not going to lay my hand upon God's anointed. And what's amazing is the fact that that's not even God's anointed. David is God's anointed at that point in time. Saul is literally just carrying the reputation. And David says, you know what? I'm so concerned with staying in the boundaries that God's established that though I know that I'm actually the one that's supposed to be the king and I'm patiently waiting, I'm not even going to dare to touch him. Even cutting off his robe makes me feel bad in my heart and I'm going to tell him I'm sorry. Listen, man, this is, this is a man who is, who's fervently trying to stay within the parameters that God established for him, saying, God, I just want to please you. God, I just want to please you. God, I just want to, I just want to please you. And over that next 17 years, you know what? David's going to have that attitude. And when he finally does take on the role of king, he will take it on as the king of Judah. Now, Judah, that Jerusalem is in Judah. And what's going to happen is Israel's a little bit in a bit of a mess at this point in time. Uh, you know, Saul's son is kind of creating some havoc. And so David's got to wait seven years in order to fulfill that role. And during that seven years, you know what he proves himself to be? Faithful. He just patiently waits on the Lord. Then finally, after seven years, unifies the nation as one. And he teaches them how to fear the Lord, how to honor God. Man, David is a fantastic king. He sets the example. He lives the example. He walks the example. And what a beautiful thing for you and I, man. Here's a man who says, you know what? I give my heart to walk with God. The Bible says a man who was after God's own heart. He recognized the boundaries. and He said, you know what? I'm going to stay within those Boundaries. And so God gives us boundaries, telling us what we should do and what we should not do. He establishes in His Word. He doesn't hide them from us. He doesn't say, well, hey, guess what? Turns out you were, you were wrong. No, He says, let me broadcast them throughout history and throughout time in my Word and tell you my expectations of you. He's upfront. He's real with us, defining for us how it is that we should live our lives. Here just a couple of examples Right? Why do you think the Lord Jesus Christ came and lived the life that he did? He lived an example for us to follow. We look at Old Testament examples of people that succeeded and failed, and we learn from their examples. God says, here, I'm going to show you how to do it right. I'm going to show you also what happens if you'll do it wrong. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 1 through 5. This is David's heart. 
He says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep His testimonies and that seek Him with the whole heart. They are also, they also do no iniquity. They walk in His ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep Thy precepts diligently. Verse 5, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep Thy statutes. Oh, man. Oh, that my ways, the way that I live my life was directed to keep Thy statutes. That, Lord, you would define the way that I walk, the way that I talk, the things that I do. And that's what David's been doing. He's been saying, you know what? God, you tell me what the parameters and I'll live within them. This is my goal for my life. And this should be ours as well. Listen to what God says to us in 1 John verse 2, chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought, also, ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Look like Christ. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. Let nothing be done through strife or fain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Let, look, not, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He says, man, live this life the way Christ did. Here, you want to know what your parameters are? Do what Jesus did. If he didn't do it, don't do it. I'm, one of the greatest advice, uh, things of advice that I've heard and would, would share with you guys is if you go, should I do it? You should go, you know what? Nope. If you have to question yourself if it's something you should or should not do, if you have to question it, do not do it. Just don't do it. Should I? No. Don't. Right? We are to operate in this world the same way that Christ did. And you know what he said? If you love me, keep my commandments. He might have said it this way, if you love me, live within my boundaries. Let me set some standards for you. And see, there are some people that hear this and they go, oh, I know how it is. Yeah, okay. God wants me to live this holy life where I'm going to spend all day praying and all day reading the Bible and all day meditating and all day, oh, yes, brother, yes, brother. Boring. Right? That's what people imagine. Oh, I'm going to praise God all day. Oh, that sounds great. I'm going to miss out on all the fun that life has to offer. Can I tell you, listen, if you are truly living for God, it is anything but boring. It is incredible. God allows us to see and witness miraculous things. If you have eyes to see, that's the problem. There's miracles taking place all around us. There are opportunities for miracles that we miss out on because we're so self-absorbed. And we think we need some grand moment to experience. Man, I need to jump off a cliff. Uh, I need to experience, you know, uh, this volcano, something. You know, and it's always searching for the next thing because they're unable to realize the fact that that's not what life is about. It's not just about being excited because it goes like this. You're always looking for the next thing. But man, what if you fell in love with Christ and he was able to work in your life? And not only could you see great things, but God could use you to do great things. What if he could use your life to change someone's eternity? Literally, someone's on their way to hell, and because of your influence, you got to see their whole life turned around. How amazing is that? What if you were to invest in their life and watch them grow in the Lord, and you see their marriage saved, or you see their children turned around, or you see their life literally becoming something that was taken from destruction and brokenness from drugs or alcohol or whatever else it is, and see them become a light in the world when they were consumed in darkness? How amazing is that? And see, people don't have that opportunity. So what they do is they dig under every rock looking for every opportunity that somehow to experience life. Man, we're getting ready to leave for Africa in five, well, seven days. Golly, we got to get hurried. i got a lot to do. <laughs> a lot to do. But praise God. 
You know, and we're going to see God do miracles there. And you get to watch the same God working in your life here, working in lives there, and doing things that you cannot even imagine. It is amazing, man. Africa will break your heart, man. It'll make you feel like you are just so underperforming in regards to walking with Christ because you see people there that, man, they put us to shame. At the judgment seat of Christ, man, God is going to sing accolades for people that will be there that have never had shoes on their feet their whole life. But they were prayer warriors who loved people and gave their lives for Christ. And there'll be people like me that, you know, what? oh, I preached. Big deal. Stand over there, buddy. This guy. This guy that was from the bush. Man, let's all give this guy a standing ovation because his heart was right his whole life. It's awesome, man. Living for God is so cool. Philippians 4, 7 says this. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amazingly, keep your hearts and minds. You know what's always under attack in this world? Our hearts and our minds. What's constantly drawing Christians to the world? Their hearts and their minds. He says, you know what? I'll keep your minds through Christ Jesus. This kind of peace is unavailable to the rest of the world. But even though it is available to every single child of God on this planet Earth today, there are many that are unwilling to stay within the boundaries that God establishes so that they can experience peace. Because you know why? They wrestle with discontentment. They're just not satisfied. And this is the kind of thinking that draws men not only to get close to the borders and the boundaries, but to push through them. Because they look outside of the boundaries that God's established and they say, you know what? I want that. <laughs> I want that. I'm willing to push through to get, to get that. And you see, that's what happened to David. A man who had lived within the boundaries that God established and he thrived. But when David got too comfortable, when he was supposed to be at war, when he was supposed to be with his men, he decided to stay back and enjoy the fruits of his labor. And in doing so, you know what he started doing? Looking around. Looking around. And discontentment found its way into a man who had been content up till then. And that little tiny seed of discontentment, you know what it started to do? It started to draw his heart and his mind. And the peace that he used to have started to slip away. And it became unrest. And he started saying, you know what? Not only do I see a beautiful woman out on a rooftop, and the guy says, hey, that's your wife. And he goes, yeah, 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 whatever. Bring her to me. He looked, he lingered, and he lusted. He took himself right through the boundary that he knew existed. And what do we see about that boundary? Outside of God's boundaries, they will face destruction. This is David's choice. David knew the covenant of marriage. Absolutely knew it for himself. He also knew it for Bathsheba. He knew she was married, and yet he was willing to push through, willingly disregarding the commandment of the Lord in order to fulfill his lustful discontentment. And then on top of that, he would steal a man's wife. He would lie about that theft, and then on top of that, he would actually murder that man through having him killed. Unbelievable. Here's a guy who had lived within the boundaries and was scared to even touch the king who wasn't the king. And here he's just pushed completely through, and he's living absolutely in defiance of God. Listen to this, Exodus 20, verses 13 through 17. 
Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Lie. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. No, listen. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, hello, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Nothing. You know where those come from? Those are the last six of the Ten Commandments. And he broke all six of those. Now, we could call them the Ten Commandments or we could call them the, the, the Ten Boundaries. Right? These were boundaries. Do not step beyond this boundary. Stay within them and you'll be safe. Why did God give them to us? To say, you know what? I'm trying to protect you, David. I'm trying to protect you from yourself. Because you know what? If you're not careful, you're going to fall prey to your flesh because you stop walking with me. And then you set your heart towards your desires. And he does the same thing for you and I. God gives us limitations. Listen, not because he wants us to miss out on an abundant life. No. That's what people tell them. That's what the devil tells people. No, 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 no. Look, if you live within the boundaries of God, you're gonna, your life's going to stink. It's gonna, you're going to miss out on everything. No. No. He gives us the limitation so that we can experience the abundant life. Why do we put a, a parameter for our children? Why do we set boundaries for our children? If we live on a busy street and we say, listen, you're not to go past that mailbox. You understand me? Never go past that mailbox. Oh, but it's so much fun. Ah. We talked about it before. You got a scooter, right? Man, you want to ride that scooter on the pavement? Well, you got a gravel driveway. That stinks. That's no fun. Have you ever ridden a, you ever ridden a scooter on the gravel? No fun at all. It's terrible. You try to roll on the grass. It's terrible. You're on your step, and you're like, mm, four feet, uh, back and forth. It's no fun. But there's all that beautiful flat pavement out there, black and perfect and smooth. And you're just like, man, you could take a ball and just be like, whoa, look how far that ball rolls. Man, scootering would be so good out there. Mom said not to go past the mailbox. Ugh, mom just doesn't want to keep me having any fun. She knows that's where all the fun's going to happen. <laughs> whom, whom, cars driving by. Is that what mom's concerned with? No, she doesn't. She, it's not at all about that. It's not about the fun. She's saying, listen, you know what? There's time for fun. But more importantly, you need to be protected from the boundaries. I need to establish a boundary to keep you from getting yourself killed. Because you know what? You're going to make bad choices if you go out in that road. And you know what? There's a really good chance you're going to get yourself clobbered. Put in your headphones and your music, and I'm going to go outside and have some fun. No. The boundary was there to protect. That's the reason why loving parents create boundaries for their kids. Man, if if you don't create boundaries for your kids, you know what? You're certainly not telling me you love them. You're setting them up for destruction. You're setting them up for a fall. So we understand this. God has established these boundaries to protect us. And again, if we look at examples of where God does this for you and I, okay? I'm going to give you just a couple of ones that we can, we can look at. Uh, we're going to look at money, okay? So money, this is a blessing, right? Finances. Jesus talks about money a tremendous amount over and over and over again. He talks about finances. We don't mention finances in church very often because you know what? I just don't feel like I need to. You know, if you love Jesus, guess what you'll do? you give to the work of the Lord. If I've got to beat you over the head to get you to give, well, then guess what? You don't need to be here. You need to get your heart right. Because when people's hearts right, guess what? They just do right, right? And so what happens is David, or, or we're given money, and, and that's a blessing. But see, money was given to us as a tool. It's a tool to be used to help others, right? If you see it in Scripture, God's always talking about giving to others, providing for others, giving unto the, to the needs of the poor, providing for those. Man, I'm telling you, we can take money and send it to Africa and watch it just become unbelievable things. We can see it in even our own community. I mean, thank you guys have contributed to, to, to Kobe going to, to Malawi. 
He's only like $300 away from hitting his goal, which is just awesome. So thank you guys so much for contributing to him going. So but we praise God. Money was given to us as a tool. But what happens is people start to fall in love with money. They start to have a desire for money. They want the finances. They're not worried about what they can do with it per se as much as they start to fall in love with it. And they start to worship money. Do you realize how many lives have been lost? How many lives have been destroyed because people seeking money? Maybe a home where a father became so in love with his career that he just, just completely abandoned his family because he wanted to become successful, because he wanted to make people look up to him. Maybe people that are willing to, to, to rob a bank and shoot people and kill them for money. Or, or people that are willing to do God knows what to destroy other people in order to have finances. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, For the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money. You know what it is? It's idolatry. We have an idol in our life. We're willing to do whatever we can to get money. The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, listen, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. If you are living your life for financial gain, you are piercing yourself through with many sorrows. Because you know what the problem is? Most of us think it's all about gain, 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 gain. But if you're laying on your deathbed and you've missed out on so much of what life was actually about, you're not going to care how much money is stacked up around you. You're not going to care what, the, what your bank account says. Man, but what if you took that money and used it as opportunities to impress or touch people with the, the love of Christ? What if your life made a difference through the money that God gave you? It's a tool. It's all about keeping things in the proper perspective. Within the borders of using it for God's glory, money is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Take it outside of the boundary that God established it. Start to love the money, and guess what it will do? It will destroy you, right? Now, let's look at this one. Sexuality. Sexuality within the confines of marriage is blessed. Listen, it enriches and strengthens unity and love between a spouse uh, between spouses, a spouse and their spouse, I guess I was going to say. Um, but, and so what, and why is it important? What is sexuality, right? And people get uncomfortable talking about it. Man, it's, it's a picture. It's another one of these physical pictures that God can show us, right? This is those two become one flesh. Now, physically, that could be talking about sexuality, but the ultimate representation or the ultimate picture of that, that the Bible's talking about two becoming one, is the DNA of the father and the DNA of the mother becoming one flesh. And now a new person exists because of those two coming together. This beautiful thing. It's a picture of Christ and the church, the unity, becoming one, functioning as one, thinking as one, being one body, one life. That's what it's talking about. So in the confines of marriage, beautiful, blessed. Take it outside the confines of marriage. It changes titles. It becomes fornication. The very same act now becomes sinful. It shows up 35 different times in your Bible, and it's always, always related to sin. Because you know what it does? It desecrates us. It hurts us, not only on a spiritual level, it actually hurts us physically. And then we're going to read a verse and say, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 says this, Flee fornication, every sin that a man doeth is without the body. Okay, Most sin is things that's not going to affect you physically per se. But it says, But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body body. There is a higher level of impact on us in this physical world. 
So we're to be careful of that. So this thing that God gave to be blessed within the confines of marriage has now been taken into our world. And you've got a multi-trillion dollar pornography industry that has taken women and men and made them into products and taken this beautiful gift that God gave as a representation of love and used it for destructive purposes. Do you know how people have been killed and hurt and maimed over sexual sin? There are women right now that are being sexually trafficked all over this planet. And this beautiful, beautiful gift, when we're taken outside of the confines of what God established, becomes destruction. Again. And there's plenty more that we could talk about, but I'm going to just give you one more. The tongue. The tongue. Our speech. Okay? So God gave us the ability to speak so that we could praise His name, so that we could sing praises unto God, and so that we could edify one another. That's why we have our tongue. It's not to tear people down. Not at all. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Boundary. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Okay? So when we speak, we should be helping people. We should be building people up. We should be helping them to know Christ, to know how to become better. That doesn't mean we can't have difficult conversations, but not for the sake of tearing someone down. Right? Many times you have a confrontive conversation. It's not for the sake of hurting the person. You're trying to help the person. Why do you stop your child from running in the street? Not because you want to be mean, because you're going, ha, ha, ha. You need to understand. I've got to speak to you in a way that you can follow and realize the fact that I'm trying to protect you. And there are people that we have in our lives, and listen, we're going to have to have tough conversations with them. We don't do it for the sake of tearing them down and proving ourselves to be right. Right? That's when we get into that place of judgment. We're not judges of anybody, man. I'm not better than anybody else. You're not better than anybody else. We're just a bunch of knuckleheads that have, by the grace of God, gotten saved. Right? All, everything, anything good is going to be from God. So God gave us this tongue. He gave us this ability to speak so that we could minister to others. But think about how destructive the tongue can be. Think about back in your life, there's that idiotic phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. No dumber thing ever said in the history of, of humanity. Whoever came up with that is an absolute idiot. Record, send that on to whoever said it, whoever came up with it. Moronic. Because I can tell you as someone who dealt with a lot of physical stuff as a child, I'm not worried about that stuff. There's words I heard when I was five years old that still have just as much weight today. Words, words hurt. Perhaps the most destructive thing on this planet is the tongue. Can you imagine how many wars have been fought based upon the tongue? Leaders saying this or saying that. Destructive things. How many of us have said hateful, hurtful, destructive things to people, things that we look back on, man, we regret it with all our heart. But we can't go back and collect it because unfortunately it lands. When you say it to somebody, it lands. And no matter how much they don't want to hear it, they do hear it. And you know what? They carry it as a weight in their hearts. And so many times we disregard the power of what we say. Look, they're just words. No. (laughs) Listen to what James Chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, tell us about it. It says, Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature. And listen, and it is set 
on fire of hell. It is absolutely wicked what can come out of a human mouth. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Man, do you not realize the power of the words that we say to people? Verse 9, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Recognize the fact that you're, when, you're, when you're running human beings down, you're actually pointing to the Creator. It's like going to an art, to an art museum and looking at a painting, and you, know, and you look at the painting, and then somebody's standing beside you, and you go, boy, what a big pile of... This is horrible. Can you believe somebody's trying to sell that thing? That's garbage. Oh, my gosh. And the guy beside you goes, yeah, I painted it. And you're like... I mean, it's not too bad. I mean, I'm... I mean, I would... You know, what do you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? I, I, mean, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't talk about this. I, was thinking about, I think I was talking about another painting, I think. I, just, I was just standing in front of this one. Right? And he says, hey, look, you know what? That ought not to be. Verse 10 says, Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings, my brethren. These things ought not so to be. So you're going to bless and curse? And he says, no, I gave it to you to, to bless. I gave it to you to edify. I gave it to you to minister. I gave it to you to, to glorify. So be careful when you use this gift. When you use it within the parameters of blessings and, and praise, man, it's good. But step outside of the parameters and the boundaries that I gave you, and guess what it becomes? It says, deadly poison set on fire of hell. And you know what's interesting? If we go to David's thriving kingdom, and we go back and we look at what actually happened to them, because of his choice, Ultimately, that will start the ball rolling that will eventually cause the entire kingdom to split. And interestingly enough, you know what it will split down? The border of Judah. That really intricate one, that will be the dividing line. And Judah will become its own nation, and Israel will become its own nation. And over time, guess what? They're both going to fall into slavery. They're never going to be able to reconcile. To this day, if you go into, into Jesus' time, Basically, it's just Judah. The rest of it was all disbanded at that point in time. Israel would never be what it used to at one, at one time was. David made a conscious choice to step outside of the boundaries of God, and millions of people have paid the price. See, God establishes bounties for a reason. Because he knows that if we go outside of them, we are playing with destruction. It's so important to realize this. And God's listed tons, and it's one of your assignments. I want you guys, this is one of the questions you're going to see, man. I want you to be thinking about, find some other areas where God's given us some boundaries. Let's consider and talk about them on Wednesday night. When we live within them and experience an abundant life, well, an abundant life, as God describes it, would be like living with a life of love, of joy, of peace, a life of contentment. So that's what living within the boundaries can provide for us. But then we can choose also to live outside of those boundaries. And in doing so, we are inviting suffering. And what will happen is people will step outside of the boundaries of God. They'll deal with the, the, the result of making that choice. And then they will love to blame God. Why did you let this happen? If you were a God of love, if you were a God of peace, this would have never happened. God says, well, no, actually, if you just live within the boundaries I established for you, this would have never happened. Right. 
Well, I know, but that's you know, like a little te technicality. I don't worry about that part. Because you know what? Guess what? People don't want to take responsibility for their actions. But God's told us what it is we should do, right? We know how to live for God. We know what he expects of us, what our expectations are. He didn't hide them from us. He tells us exactly. And the beautiful thing is that he walks through us through the valleys. He'll, he'll whisper to our hearts and minds and help us to have realizations of, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't do this. You ever hear that little voice that kind of gives you a little nudge and goes, nah, 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 and you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't, or maybe I should, right? He walks with us through whatever it is we face. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, man, I shall fear no evil for thou art with me. He says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He'll walk with us through everything. And you walk up to the boundary and you feel that thing in your heart that goes, should I? Don't. Don't. Turn around, step back. Be like David when he was thriving, man. I'm not even going to lay my hand on God's anointed. I would not even dare. What if we live that way? What if we kept ourselves away from the boundaries instead of always pushing to see how far we can get? There's two types of children, the kind that you establish a boundary and they go, thanks, mom. And the other is when you go, I'm going to establish a boundary and you go, I'll tell you what happens when I get through it. Somebody, you tell them, hey, man, don't do this, and they won't. Other people are like, you know what? I'll just see what happens. I need to experience it. And we're all different. But I pray we can listen to the Lord. Because listen, you know what? He has a purpose for those boundaries. He established them for a purpose. You and I have the choice. We can either thrive or we can suffer destruction. It all depends on where it is we want to live. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today, for the gift of the Word of God. Thank you for the clarity, uh, Father, that you've given uh, to Scripture, Lord, that, uh, that I struggled with. And I just pray that, uh, Lord, you'd help us to have ears to hear, to receive, God, this truth. And, Lord, help us to recognize the fact that you put boundaries in our lives because you love us, because you love us more than we can possibly, possibly imagine. And for those that are here today that may say, you know what, I'm, I'm struggling right now to... to keep myself within the boundaries of God. Maybe there's something I've, I've pushed through and I'm dealing with the results of it. Maybe there's some that I'm considering pushing through. There's boundaries I'm considering breaking. I'm pushing them as we speak. And Lord, I pray that you give my brothers and sisters the insight, uh, Lord, the willingness, uh, Lord, the dependence to trust you and to submit to your will in the midst, uh, God, of struggles and difficulties. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to guide us through your word, that your spirit, God, would give us insight and wisdom as we read. And Lord, also give us instruction as we live. God, help us to be sensitive, uh, Lord, to your, uh, to your nudges and to, Lord, your truth. And I pray for those that are here today and maybe say, I don't know where I stand with God. I don't know necessarily that I'm even a child of God. There are a lot of people in the world that believe they are saved. A lot of people that believe they're on their way to heaven. They say, well, I believe in God. Well, that's great. But you know what? The devil believes in God. He's not going to heaven. It's not about knowing that God exists. It's about receiving the gift of his son. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and died a horrific death for us, for us on our behalf, because he loves us. Because there is a debt that we owe because of our sin, and we've all sinned. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone has the same issue, the same problem. It divides and separates us from God. And Jesus said, you know what? I will offer myself a sacrifice to pay the debt of humanity. And then it comes down to this. It's a gift. And the gift just has to be received. If you've never consciously received the gift of God, which is eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, I'm going to give you that opportunity now. It's not a religious moment. It's not a, a ceremony. It's not some magic prayer. It's nothing more than a broken heart calling out to a loving God. And as he calls out to you, all you have to do is surrender your will and receive his gift. 
So with their heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ, I'm going to lead you in prayer. Again, it's not the words, it's your heart God's listening to. Repeat after me in your heart and mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm so sorry for my sin. I know and understand now that you love me. And I know I don't deserve it, but yet you love me anyway. God, would you come into my heart? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you give me a home in heaven? Lord, thank you for saving me. As simple as just calling out to you, amazingly, you have saved my soul. Thank you for what you've done today. I pray you'll help me live for you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.